Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the continuing standoff over the debt ceiling as the clock runs out for the Congress to make a deal that goes to the Senate, then the White House, before the June 1st deadline of default. Joining us to discuss the contours of a deal shaping up that is, as Speaker McCarthy has promised, neither a clean debt limit bill or a suicide pact pushing the U.S. over the brink, is E.J. Dion, a columnist for the Washington Post, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a visiting professor at Harvard University, and a professor at Georgetown University. He's the author of Why the Right Went Wrong, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller One Nation After Trump, and Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. His latest book, co-authored with Miles Rappaport, is 100% Democracy, the case for universal voting, and we will discuss his latest article at the Washington Post, The Poor Are Being Held Hostage in the Debt Ceiling Standoff. Then we'll examine the bills just passed by the Texas legislature that target Democratic strongholds in the red state of Texas that is trending blue, which is why voting restrictions are being imposed on the biggest blue county encompassing Houston, with similar voting suppression laws heading for Austin and Dallas. Joining us is Ari Berman, a senior reporter at Mother Jones covering voting rights and a reporter at the Nation Institute. He's the author of Herding Donkeys, The Fight to Rebuild the Democratic Party and Reshape American Politics, and his latest book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. We will discuss his article at Mother Jones, Republicans are trying to seize control over voting in Texas's largest Democratic county. Then finally, with the billionaire donor who has been lavishing Justice Thomas with gifts now refusing to cooperate with the Senate Judiciary Committee's inquiry, we will explore the role of the shadowy fixer for the reverse altruism of right-wing billionaires who want to subjugate women, fight against wokeness and regulations on climate change and limit voting rights. Joining us is Nina Burley, a journalist, best-selling author, documentary producer, and the publisher of the Substack American Freak Show, a professor at New York University's Arthur J. Carter Journalism Institute. Her journalism has been published widely, including in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Airmail, and New York Magazine. She's written seven books, the latest of which is The Trump Women, Part of the Deal, and virus, vaccinations, the CDC, and the hijacking of America's response to the pandemic. And she's currently working on a memoir about growing up Iraqi American. We'll discuss her article at the New Republic, Who is Leonard Leo's Mysterious Dark Money King? And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is E.J. Dion, who is a columnist for The Washington Post, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a visiting professor at Harvard University and a professor at Georgetown University. He's the author of Why the Right Went Wrong and co-author of the New York Times bestseller One Nation After Trump and Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. His latest book, co-authored with Miles Rappaport, is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And his latest article at the Washington Post is The Poor Are Being Held Hostage in the Debt Ceiling Standoff. Welcome to Background Briefing, E.J. Dion. So lovely to be with you, and so kind of you to mention all those books. Thank you. Well, <laughs> you wrote them. <laughs> so, yeah, that was very good of you. So, E.J., just before we talk about your article at the Post, I wanted just to do a, a reality check here on how close we are to this drop-dead date of June the 1st. There's only nine days left for the Congress, and only six of those are working days. And McCarthy has promised that to allow his caucus at least 72 hours for members to review the text of the agreement. So that means, in theory, they're going to have to come to an agreement by this coming Friday, the 26th, uh, at the latest. And then it goes to the Senate, and then you've got the possibility of people like Rand Paul throwing sand in the gears there. And then it goes to the White House, where they'll basically have little to no time to go over it and make sure there's no errors and loopholes, etc. So we're really hanging on by the fingernails here, aren't we? Well, you know, I think the drop-dead date, as it were, on the debt ceiling is kind of a black box. And I think Yellen is telling the truth as much as we can know it. Uh, But whether the government runs out of money depends on all sorts of odd things like when do tax payments come in and what uh, what bills can they postpone for a few days? Somebody who's uh, uh, far more expert than I am on this here at Brookings mentioned yesterday that if they could actually um, uh, hang on until June 15th, the drop dead date might be much later because a whole lot of money comes into the government again on June 15th because of advanced tax payments from businesses and usually high income individuals. Um, so we don't really know. Um, it does not seem like we can have a bill um, that quickly. But I do think that both McCarthy and Biden, for their very different reasons, uh, kind of want to use the Yellen uh, deadline to speed up uh, the path to some uh, to some agreement. Um, you clearly Biden does not want us to go over that edge, um, and you get the sense that despite a lot of negative rhetoric about Biden, McCarthy doesn't really want to do it either. If for no other reason than there are swing district Republicans uh, in his uh, caucus. Um, who don't want the country to go over the edge because they feel they would be hurt by it, too. So I have a feeling they are headed for a deal. But there, it's just like, a, in a way, a labor negotiation where both sides are making a lot of negative noises at various points to reassure 
their respective doubters, the uh, McCarthy, the people on the right, and Biden, uh, many liberals and progressives who really will not like uh, the deal very much because it will necessarily involve cuts. Um, and there seems to be a lot of theater here, but you can't tell what's theater. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and it's hard to discern what's theater in a negotiation and what is actual, what are actually real problems. Well, what we've learned from McCarthy is not much, but he did say that there will not be a clean deal, but he also said there also will not be a default. If you go back to 2011, when President Obama faced a similar situation, the public were much more behind him. A recent ABC Washington Post poll has 36% of Democrats being blamed uh, and 39% of Republicans being blamed if we go to default. And the latest Marist poll says now is 43% of Democrats being blamed and 45% of Republicans being blamed. And there's this other wild card, which is the uh, House Freedom Caucus. The president has mentioned that he was asked by a Fox News reporter uh, whether he'll get blamed. And Biden said, I think there are some MAGA Republicans in the House who know the damage that it would do to the economy. And because I am president and presidents are responsible for everything, Biden would take the blame. And that's the only way to make sure Biden's not reelected. So there's a lot of nihilism on that, in that caucus amongst Marjorie Taylor Greene and company. How real do you think that problem is? That, In other words, for all of McCarthy's uh, efforts to bridge the gap or to come up with a deal, could he be stymied by his radicals? I mean, the short answer is yes. I, I think there are two issues here that you raise that are important. One is we are even more polarized uh, politically uh, than we were, um, you know, even 10, 12 years ago when we had the last fight. And so people are simply inclined to say the other guys will be to blame, particularly on the Republican side. They're going to blame Biden for anything uh, that goes wrong. So I think those numbers aren't shocking, but they're not the numbers Democrats hope for. Democrats hoped that they could pin far more of the blame on this on Republicans, because after all, they are the ones using the debt ceiling uh, to extract these concessions. But so far, it hasn't worked out that way. There is this sneaky suspicion on the part of Democrats that whether it's that the economy would go haywire if we went over the edge or simply that the economy, the you know, economic growth could be hurt if the cuts are too deep. That happened to Obama, where the cuts really made the recovery from the 2008 crash much slower. Um, the Republicans are just fine with that because more than anything, Biden needs a decent economy to get reelected. Uh, so there is a suspicion that some Republicans are ready to do that. I think that as Biden and McCarthy negotiate here, they are both aware that they have to have a deal that can get votes from both parties. Um, the numbers I have heard is that McCarthy has to deliver about 150 of his Republicans, that he will lose 70 from the right wing or so. And that means that Democrats are going to have to deliver 70 votes for a deal. It's a very tricky simultaneous equation, because if the deal goes too far to the right, a lot of Democrats are going to say, I cannot vote for this. McCarthy has to deliver more of his members. 
But a lot of right-wingers don't want to vote for any debt ceiling increase. If the deal becomes less onerous in terms of cuts to pick up more Democratic votes, then more Republicans might go south. And that's the reality. And, well, if you ask around Washington, people off the record really think they will eventually get those votes. It's a very tricky problem, and it wouldn't entirely shock me if they reached a deal and it initially got voted down because too many uh, you know, very conservative right-wing Republicans and too many progressive Democrats voted no. Uh, and that's the challenge they face. Um, not, you know, and we haven't even gotten to the substance yet, but that's the political challenge. But just at the moment, since they're negotiating today again and there's no deal yet, at least there seems to be the contours of a deal coming from the White House with Biden saying he's willing to meet the Speaker halfway and the compromises that have been offered apparently are a spending freeze, rescinding significant unspent COVID relief funds and a two-year cap on spending in line with previous bipartisan budget agreements. Now, back in 2011, of course, they did discretional spending caps on both discretional money, non-defense and defense. And of course, the Pentagon quickly found ways around that. Is that your understanding of the contours of the deal, EJ? Those are the contours, but there are a lot of specifics that matter uh, that are still up for grabs. The Biden administration position is, look, this was a Republican Congress we were eventually going to have to a Republican House, I should emphasize. This is a Republican House. They were going to force us to make cuts at some point, whether they do it now or in the fall when it came time to adopt the budget. So the Biden people are saying we would have to make some of these concessions eventually. Let's just do them now, get the debt ceiling voted on and move forward and know the budget world we're going to have to live in. But they are still fighting over very substantive uh, issues. Number one is how deep are the cuts? Um, the Republicans want more than the deal you just outlined, which is kind of the one Biden would like to be on the table. They'd like more cuts. They want to increase defense spending, which would further increase the size of cuts in domestic programs, a lot of which go to low income people. They further want to protect veterans, which Democrats agree to, but that would force even more cuts in domestic programs. So they are really fighting about the size of the cuts and the contours because Democrats are very worried that the cuts in domestic spending could become you know, far deeper than they were hoping they would have to uh, agree to. And then there's the matter of timing, which is there's a lot of pressure in McCarthy's caucus to extend it beyond two years. The Biden view is, you know, we why bind the future since that can be changed by a future Congress anyway. Uh, you know, they're going to be stuck with this Republican House until after the 2024 election. So a two year deal makes sense to them. And most important to the Biden people, get the debt ceiling raised way past the election so they never have to deal with this problem until the election is over. But that doesn't extend to the point of getting rid of this antique 1917 law. No, the Republicans welcome it because it gives them opportunities to do this. Democrats should have tried much harder to do something on that a while back. But I agree with the premise of your question. 
This is a law enacted to deal with the politics around borrowing when we uh, went into World War One. And it was a political Band-Aid for that moment that is totally dysfunctional for 2023. It's an idiotic idea. The only other country that has it is Denmark. And they have a debt ceiling so high that it doesn't matter. So we are the only country in the world, really, with um, uh, what is fundamentally a very stupid law because the money is already spent. The debt has already been run up uh, and there's no point in having a debt ceiling. So just in the the last few minutes, and I wanted to touch on your article at the Washington Post, EJD, on the poor being held hostage in the debt ceiling standoff. I'm I'm wondering why that hasn't been the central argument. I mean, I guess it's a, it's a moral argument, and maybe we are becoming a, a coarser and crueler society. The better angels have escaped us. But still, the idea that McCarthy and the Republicans want to just punish the poor arbitrarily and unnecessarily with this artificial crisis that they're creating, at the same time, McCarthy's made it clear that he not only wants to protect Trump and George W. Bush tax cuts, but he wants to make them permanent. And he also wants to get rid of the estate tax, which, of course, is really the, the sort of, I mean, that's, that is a wealth protection move for the, for the American oligarchy. I mean, it's just there's only a handful of these people that benefit from this. So it's so skewered that I find it obscene. So why don't you think the Democrats have not made a bigger deal out of this? Well, first of all, I appreciate your saying that because I obviously agree with you entirely that the notion that we would extend, that Republicans would extend the Bush tax cuts, as you say, um, you know, get rid of the estate tax, which would be the Elon Musk Enhancement Act of 2023. um, And then want to force cuts that would necessarily, given what, you know, we use the bland phrase domestic discretionary spending beyond what the federal agencies basically do. A lot of that money uh, is for programs that benefit lower income Americans. And that's where the cuts are going to go. And they want to they also want to put on phony work requirements, which virtually every study of them shows they are ineffectual. What they tend to do is create bureaucratic barriers for working people who have a right to these programs to access them. They don't actually create jobs or encourage people uh, to work. And so I agree with you. That is, for me, the central issue at stake here. There have been some efforts. If you look at statements that the White House has made, some of their calculations, um, some of what some uh, Democrats, particularly progressives on the Hill, are talking about, you hear them trying to make that case. But I also think there is a reality of American politics, which is um, everybody wants to make their case in terms of the middle class, uh, because that's where they see the swing voters. Um, And so people don't really want to focus too much on low income Americans in making the case. But the moral case is indeed relative to the damage that would happen to lower income Americans. And Biden has said explicitly he doesn't want to make do anything that will increase the poverty rate in the country. I'm glad he said that. That should be a standard. A Democratic president sure ought not to make the poor poorer. But depending on the nature of the cuts, it's hard to escape the idea 
that programs, whether it's in child care or income support or health care, programs that go to low-income people will almost necessarily be cut if there are cuts in the broader budget. And that's a real scandal, I think. So just in the last minute, EJ, what about, you mentioned the uh, Elon Musk Enhancement Act. He's going to be uh, on Twitter today with Governor Ron DeSantis, who's announcing he's running for the presidency in a conversation with Musk. Is there any way, I mean, he's got 140 million Twitter followers. I imagine that's the reason why DeSantis is doing this. And a lot of them are young, unfortunately. Why they find this guy interesting is beyond my understanding. But nevertheless, uh, do you think that DeSantis will make a little bit of a comeback since he's about 34 points down from Trump? Because from what I'm hearing about DeSantis is that uh, there's less to him than meets the eye. Yeah, uh, two things. I should say that I turned in my membership in the Prognosticators Union at midnight of the 2016 election. So I just want (laughs) to put that caveat out there. Um, Second, I agree with the premise that 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 DeSantis has some real problems as just a basic politician. Good politicians relate easily to people like people or at least are really good at pretending it. uh, And he's not very good at that. And, And so I think he has those core problems. But there's an almost iron rule of punditry that politicians are way overestimated for a while until they are way underestimated. I have a feeling that DeSantis may have some openings going forward that we're not recognizing now. Everyone says none of the indictments, if they come, will affect Trump. Trump is invulnerable, and maybe he is with the Republican electorate. But it is also possible that the next several months could be rougher for Trump than people realize. And DeSantis is, for better or worse, the go-to alternative for an awful lot of voters. And if there are front-leaning voters who think, you know, he may not be able to make it this time, I still think there might be an opening to DeSantis. Now, for my own personal politics, I don't say that with any particular joy. Um, But I do think we should be wary of punditry's habit of both over- and underestimating people and DeSantis may be currently in a sort of a, in a, an underestimation period. Well, E.J. Dion, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, thank you. It's a great pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with E.J. Dion, who is a columnist for The Washington Post, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a visiting professor at Harvard University and a professor at Georgetown University. He's the author of Why the Right Went Wrong and co-author of the New York Times bestseller One Nation After Trump and Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. And his latest book, co-authored with Miles Rappaport, is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And his latest article of the Washington Post is The Poor Are Being Held Hostage in a Debt Ceiling Standoff. We can take a brief station break. We're back examining the bills just passed by the Texas legislature that target Democratic strongholds in red states of Texas that are trending blue, which is why voting restrictions are being imposed on the biggest blue county encompassing Houston.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ari Berman, a senior reporter at Mother Jones, covering voting rights and a reporting fellow at the Nation Institute. He's the author of Herding Donkeys, The Fight to Rebuild the Democratic Party and Reshape American Politics. And his latest book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. And he has an article at Mother Jones, Republicans are trying to seize control over voting in Texas's largest Democratic county. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ari Berman. Hey, Ian. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And this is, uh, as the article indicates, is that this is making Harris County, which is votes Democrat in and around Houston, the epicenter of what Common Cause in Texas calls the Texas edition of the big lie. So to walk us through the, these two bills that the Republican-dominated Texas legislature have just pushed through. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, Ian. The Texas legislature has basically singled out Harris County, which is home to Houston and is the largest county in Texas, the bluest county in Texas, and the third largest county in the U.S. So just a massive place with huge political significance. And they've done uh, two things there. They have abolished the position of election administrator in Harris County. So Harris County elections are run by essentially an official. That's their only job. They've abolished that position, and they have said that elections will be now run by other offices where Republicans believe they can exert more control. Then they've passed another bill that will give the Secretary of State of Texas, who is appointed by the state's Republican governor, Greg Abbott, power to potentially take over elections in Harris County uh, if there's uh, what they call good cause based on re- repeated problems uh, in the county. And I think what's uh, amazing here is just the fact that the legislature is singling out one county uh, for all of this new oversight and that it happens to be the largest blue county in the state. So that makes it very notable. Well, the bill applies solely to large urban centers with four million people or more. So that's pretty blatant, isn't it? It's pretty blatant. I mean, the way they've they've written these bills, they don't actually mention Harris County, uh, but they writ, wrote the criteria in that Harris County is the only county that falls under uh, these kind of restrictions. And I, I mean, it's it's really pretty unique for uh, a legislature to single out one area uh, in such a specific way. Uh, and originally, the bill was going to give the Secretary of State potential oversight over every county in Texas if they met this criteria. And then it was amended just to single out Harris County, and they've already abolished the position of election administrator there. So it, it's 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 a pretty unprecedented level of meddling uh, by the legislature in the affairs of one county and possibly pretty much the most significant county in the state, home to Houston, which is the most diverse city in America and a place where uh, I'm told half the Democratic votes in Texas come from Harris County. So it's a huge center uh, for Democrats in the state of Texas. And I think it's been trending away from the Republican Party for some years now. And the Republican Party wants to try to exert more control over how things work there. 
but they can extend the, this to from just from Harris County in and around Houston to Austin and Dallas, can they not? They could if they wanted to, and, and that's right. the precedent. It's it's once you start singling out one blue area, what's to stop you from trying to single out other blue areas? And of course, the Texas legislature has already made voting extremely difficult. It's a state that has no online registration. Under its voter ID law, you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID. You have to have an excuse or be over 65 to vote by mail. So mail ballots are not easily accessible. Uh, They just passed a huge number of new restrictions on voting two years ago that did things like uh, abolished all mail ballot drop boxes. And particularly that bill targeted Harris County because Harris County did things in 2020 to try to make voting easier. They extended voting hours. They sent mail ballot applications to all voters. Uh, They did uh, drive-through voting and 24-hour voting uh, to make voting as convenient as possible. And the Texas legislature got rid of all of that two years ago. And now they're going further. They're saying, we're not just going to make it more difficult to vote, but we're actually going to take over your elections if we don't like the way that you're running them. But these election laws or these restrictions in Texas have had the result of having Texas rank near the bottom of voter turnout in the country? Yeah, I mean, Texas consistently ranks near the bottom in voter turnout in in every election. If not at the bottom, then very close to the bottom. Uh, It's widely regarded as the most difficult state in the country to vote in. It has more than 3 million unregistered voters, which is larger than the population of many states. And so I think you're, you're in a situation where Texas is a very diverse state, but the political leadership doesn't reflect that diversity. It's basically a state where people of color are the majority, but the state is controlled by white Republicans. And Republicans want to maintain that situation as long as possible. They want to keep control in the face of the changing demographics. And so what they're doing is They're making it more difficult to vote, and they're trying to exert more influence over these areas that are changing demographically. And and nowhere in the state is changing more than a place like Harris County, which is not just becoming more diverse, but it used to be staunchly Republican and and now is trending to be more and more Democratic. Uh, And so uh, it seems to be the leading place where Republicans are preoccupied now, but certainly that preoccupation will extend to other blue areas in the state as well. Well, it was the congressional seat for George Bush Sr., wasn't it? It was. And I mean, again, this this it was a very um, Republican area for many years. The suburbs of Houston in particular were Republican strongholds. Those areas have changed tremendously. They've become much more diverse, much more competitive. Uh, and Harris County has shifted away from the GOP, just like Dallas has. Uh, And so you have a situation in Texas where the state's largest cities are Democratic now. And so Republicans are getting their votes from the rural areas that are ultimately shrinking. And so they have a demographic problem on their hand, and they're trying to forestall those demographic changes for as long as possible. And in that way, I think Texas is a microcosm of the country in terms of how it's changing demographically. You could argue that Texas should already be like a place like Georgia. It should already be a competitive battleground based on the demographics of the state. Uh, But the problem is that the demographics of the state aren't reflected in the political leadership of the state. 
But this is all deliberate, isn't it? I mean, it's so obvious that that this is a priority for the Republicans, particularly the Republican Party in Texas, to deny the Democratic votes and to hold on to power and essentially invoke uh, the tyranny of the minority. It is very deliberate, but it's also a difficult thing to try to break because uh, unless uh, Democrats start winning some major races, it's very, very difficult to break the stranglehold on power. And it's more difficult for Democrats to win these races because of all the restrictions on voting that have already been enacted. And the places where Democrats have had success on the local level, like in Harris County, Republicans are trying to roll that back. And so they're trying to create a feedback loop, essentially, that only works in the GOP's direction. And I think that they're doing this because they know that if Texas becomes a swing state, particularly in presidential elections, that's going to mean a huge amount of defense for Republicans. And if they were ever to lose the state of Texas in a presidential election, it would be very, very difficult for Republicans to be able to win the Electoral College unless some other very significant states would flip from blue to red. So, Ari Berman, let's talk about a third bill that passed the Texas legislature on Monday that would allow Texas to become the ninth state to withdraw from the Electronic Registration Information Center, ERIC, which is a multi-state compact that that seeks to keep voter rolls clean and accurate by comparing voter registration data among states. And that, of course, is really important um, because, you know, you've got snowbirds, whatever they call them, going from the north to Florida. They could vote in both states. It's something that has been very, very helpful and very useful and very necessary. But there's this Republican jihad against Eric. They're floating all kinds of conspiracy theories that somehow Eric is funded by George Soros, etc. So give us an update on the war against Eric. Yeah, this is pretty amazing because the purpose of Eric is really to keep voting rolls clean and to prevent double voting, which is exactly what Republicans claim they want to do. Uh, But they have turned against the organization in basically the last year under all sorts of conspiracy theories, uh, claiming it's controlled by George Soros. They don't like uh, a part of the organization's mandate that says that they should try to register eligible but uh, unregistered voters. And so in in a very short period of time, Uh, States like Florida, uh, states uh, like Virginia have pulled out of ERIC. And what this means is that, in fact, the voting rolls are going to become less clean and that the data that is used to try to uh, maintain voting rolls, to try to search for voter fraud, is going to be far more inaccurate uh, and it's going to lead to many more problems. Um, and so it really just shows how all of these laws, in fact, have nothing to do with trying to prevent voter fraud, because if Republicans really wanted to prevent voter fraud, they wouldn't be leaving ERIC, which is an organization that exists to try to prevent uh, things like voter fraud from ever happening. So just in closing, Ari Berman, since you've worked assiduously on this issue, which is a shame to think that the world's greatest democracy, which is what we like to call ourselves, is so flawed and one party seems to be dedicated into essentially creating one-party rule. 
this is the stuff of fascism when you don't want the other side to vote. And yet, is there any way to shame these people, to shame this party? Is there a mechanism here to somehow invoke democracy against this creeping autocracy? You'd hope so. I mean, one of the good things that came out of the 2022 election was that a lot of the people who didn't believe in democracy in the Republican Party lost their races. The Republicans lost major races for things like Secretary of State and Attorney General and Governors because they didn't believe in democracy and they were punished for it in places like Wisconsin and Arizona and Pennsylvania and other places. And so there, there was a real pro-democracy majority uh, in many places. The problem is that these red states continue to radicalize against democracy, continue to take more outlandish action, whether it's Texas or whether it's Tennessee. Uh, and I think that the, either the laws have to change or the voters have to become more aware of what's happening in these places and, and demand a change to it. But I mean, right now, there's just a tremendous disconnect between uh, what the public wants and what the leadership of the state is doing. I mean, we're talking on the one-year anniversary of the Uvalde massacre in Texas, and the legislature has passed no gun control bills. So the legislature continues to be out of step with the state, and I think that people in the state just have to become more aware of that and understand that they ultimately have the power to change this. Well, Larry Berman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Ari Berman, who's a senior reporter at Mother Jones covering voting rights and a reporting fellow at the Nation Institute. He's the author of Herding Donkeys, The Fight to Rebuild the Democratic Party and Reshape American Politics. And his latest book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. And he has an article at Mother Jones, Republicans are trying to seize control over voting in Texas's largest Democratic county. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring the role of the shadowy fixer for the reverse altruism of right-wing billionaires who want to subjugate women, fight against wokeness, end regulations on climate change, and limit voting rights. Well, I met you on election night As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up We broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nina Burley, who's a journalist, best-selling author, documentary producer, and publisher of the Substack American Freak Show, a professor at New York University's Arthur J. Carter Journalism Institute. Her journalism has been published widely, including in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Airmail, and New York Magazine. She's written seven books, the latest of which is The Trump Women, Part of the Deal, and Virus Vaccinations and the CDC and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic. And she's currently working on a memoir about growing up Iraqi American and has an article at The New Republic, Who is Leonard Leo's Mysterious Dark Money King? Welcome to Background Briefing, Nina Burley. Thank you. Well, that was a mouthful. It was. 
<laughs> well, you weren't at all. So I don't know about that, but thank you. Thank so you for having me. We're now learning that the billionaire Republican donor to Clarence Thomas, Harlan Crow, has refused to comply with the Senate Judiciary Committee subpoena. And this could sort of intensify the fight between Democratic senators and the Supreme Court over ethics, which so far the Chief Justice has managed to dodge. So given that what Durbin, the chairman of the committee, has said, let me just quote him, Harlan Crow believes the secrecy of his lavish gifts to Justice Thomas is more important than the reputation of the highest court of law in this land. He is wrong. So if they move to a subpoena, this could become a real test of the separation of powers, surely. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I mean, I don't think Clarence Thomas is being very forthcoming either. Um, I listened to um, Adam Liptak, you know, the Times um, court expert talking about this. Um, he really knows a lot about it. And it, it, it's on the um, on the it's on the Daily podcast a couple of weeks ago. And basically, there is no judge for these judges. They judge themselves, which goes against the great axiom in in law. Do not, you, you know, no judge can judge him or herself. And and basically, the, the the way the system is set up, there's no outside body to tell it what to do. I mean, it it you know they can they can subpoena, but as we know, you know, the subpoena is only those congressional subpoenas are are they you know the Republicans have been blowing them off for years. The Bush administration blew them off with respect to the Iraq war, right? Um, they just blow them off. And and so, you know, like everything else in the Trump years, what we've learned is that the American legal system is fragile. And it only, it depends entirely on people agreeing to follow it. And if they don't, uh, you know, then there's, 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 <laughs> there's a lot of impunity. Um, Trump shows, showed that with his life, lifetime 4,000 lawsuits or something. And, um, and, and that's kind of the, the, the lay of the land. So I don't know what, I don't know what Durbin's going to do. I don't know if they can, who, who do they appeal to? I mean, can they go to the house? Isn't going to impeach their impeachment is apparently an option. Mm -hmm. Well, of course the connection to your article is comes in the form of that painting uh, that we've seen of the billionaire Harlan Crow sitting around at his estate in the Adirondacks with Leonard Leo and Justice Thomas, and uh, leads me to ask you about your article because it really it tells the story of how Leonard Leo got the $1.6 billion from uh, Barry Side, this uh, electronic magnet. And as you point out, this is a story of altruism in reverse that... This is a reactionary project that has a fire hose of cash aimed at destroying American liberal culture through lawsuits and support for politicians challenging gay rights, unions, environmental protection, voting rights, and public education. And what's so alarming about it is that this bequest uh, can throw off between 150 and 200 million a year, so they don't even have to touch the principal. And this could go on forever then, for decades, this this project of, of Leonard Leo's. It's just getting started, right? Yeah, it's just getting started. He he set up, you know, a different operation separate from the Federalist Society to 
to utilize the money to to um, to be able to use it in more political ways. And um, all of it is dark. The the you know under the under the IRS they don't have to um, even say what they're doing with it. Um, and the only reason that we know about Barry's side and the 1.6 billion is that somebody dropped a dime um, to the New York Times and or ProPublica who broke it in August. And it's not clear whether it was somebody who, I mean, it's we can all we can play the guessing game. Was it somebody who was wanted to have that money and didn't get it? Or was it maybe somebody who was um, offended by, you know, the Federalist Society? Some of the people, the Federalist Society are on record, I think, in, in a recent Politico article talking about how they they don't like what Leonard Leo has been doing. So maybe maybe somebody like that brought it up. I don't know, but in any case, uh, yeah, Barry side. What I, you know, I got interested because I'm from Chicago originally, and I read this article. I read the you know the breaking news in August, and I thought, uh, you know, what would possess someone to to fork over a lifetime of you know gathering huge amounts of money to this one regressive operation and not like leave any money for, you know, the Humane Society or, you know, he lives in Chicago and they're, you know, their children in need desperately on the west side of Chicago, like not even to peel off a couple million for other operations, but to give it all to this project. And, and so I thought, you know, it's worth investigating and trying to find out who this guy is and what's his rosebud. So I went there and I thought that, I have covered politics in Illinois, but it's been a while and I had covered politics in Chicago. And I thought, I know enough people there that I can get a wedge in to figure out who this guy is. And it turned out that he's very, very shy and he spent his entire political years of political activity um, trying to remain anonymous. Um, and, and so what it was, it was not easy to get uh, information about him. However, uh, there is one guy who talks about him who has talked about him all the time. And he's, he's kind of a political, he's like the Illinois version of Roger Stone. Um, not quite as evil, but he's an anti-abortion fanatic. And from way back, um, he was a, you know, kind of a fringe hard right conservative. And he, he noticed that there were these donations coming into his operation at, at, at $999. This was back in the 80s, always $999, which was just under like a reporting um, uh, level. So he finally decided to figure out who this guy was, and he did find Barry Side in this uh, office of a company um, that made rotating ambulance lights. But had he, the guy, had, he, Barry Side had just gotten into – uh, buying a company that made surge protectors. And his timing was great because it was the 80s. And what was happening in the 80s? Well, Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates were making um, what we called then home computers. And everyone in the world now needs a surge protector, right? And all this, and they, he makes other electronic, he makes hardware to go with this, you know, the the innovations of of Jobs and um and gates and um so he he started off you know he was discovered by this by this right-wing uh extreme anti-abortion guy and named steve bear and steve 
introduced him, coaxed him out and got him to start, you know, forking over tranches of millions of dollars to Koch brother, like U.S. term limits operation, which was an incubator for people like um, Mike Pompeo in Kansas. And then um, and then, you know, eventually somebody introduced him to um, George, these this cabal of people at George Mason University Law School which is now called Lee, the Scalia Law School. Um, and um, thanks to Barry Side's um, donation, it, it's believed. And then through them, uh, he was introduced to Leonard Leo, or maybe it went the other way. But in, in any case, um, what I was able to do was track the sort of trajectory of the, the these right-wing operatives coaxing this man out um, and into their world and and the ways that they were doing it um you know through flattery and coaxing and wheedling and cajoling and making him feel smart and and you know he is a smart he's a smart man he he had uh, some degrees in i think english and and something else and he was not an engineer but he he was able to run these businesses and he again was standing in the right place at the right time when a big avalanche of money fell on him because of the surge protector situation. So, uh, so yeah, that's what it's about. And, you know, he's, um, he's somebody who, you know, like Robert Mercer, I, I compare him to Robert Mercer, I think, because these, these are these, and there are many other people like this really rich old cranks who are like, um, your uncle, you know, the libertarian, at, you know, at Thanksgiving who has maybe too many cats or something just like they have, you know, they're, they're not, um, they're not terribly sociable, I guess. And, um, you know, he has obviously got a pretty jaundiced view of altruism and, and the human, you know, humanity. And, um, you know, so all of the money is going towards making sure that, you know, the right and and the interesting thing was from I got from Steve Bear the you know the odd de comp was that he Barry side didn't even care about abortion he was a secular he's a secular Jew and he had no concern about he didn't care about it he, he didn't you know he, he he was interested only in you know shoring up kind of this libertarian mindset or or you know hard right economic mindset of don't tax me and don't regulate me. Um, right. But that, but Nina, that's the twin pillars of Leonard Lear's belief system in the Federalists. It's, it's laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. And it is extraordinary to think that a secular Jew gave $1.6 to this Roman Catholic anti-abortion fanatic, Opus Dei character, Leonard Lear, Knights of Malta, uh, who succeeded in stacking the federal bench and the Supreme Court, getting rid of Roe and Casey, uh, taking away women's rights and reproductive choice. But now he's moving this money towards other goals, as you write, stopping woke culture, limiting voting rights, and ending federal regulations on climate change. So I'm trying to find some ideological consistency here, Nina, if you are, are a right-to-life fanatic, how about a right-to-life for this planet? Well, I mean, no, you know, th there's no logic to the right-to-life, quote, a right-to-life movement, obviously, because otherwise they should be out there adopting all the migrants' babies, putting up migrants in their houses, 
fighting the death penalty. You know, they should be out there protesting death penalties um, and, and they're not. So we know that it's not really about right to life. It's about controlling re- women, really. That's what the, the abortion movement is about. It's all about that. And um, so, you know, what is moving beyond for, for Leonard Leo to move beyond that into that other realm? Um, well, part of it is, I think, you know, once they got this ruling overturned, once they got Dobbs overturned, it was it's always been sort of a mystery, like, what are they going to do next? You know, um, because they got it and it was such an organizing principle for them. Right. You know, they could always count on these people coming out during primaries and general elections in droves. You know, the churches are the organizing uh, structure. And so they could count on them coming out as long as they had this, look, these little babies are being murdered. Right. And they could count on people coming out now that they've overturned it. They are going to need some other rallying force. So obviously, you know, you're looking at the um, the gay rights and especially, you know, transgender stuff is um, is useful to them. Um, but underpinning all of it was if they were going to get this money from the money, the, the money people, if they were going to get it, you know, since they allied themselves with the no tax corporate corporatists um, at some point, you know, they were going to have to do something to pay back that side of the whole system. So I guess, you know, part of it is they're, you know, they're, they're going to, um, you know, put people in positions that aren't, it's not just a social movement. It's about making sure that, you know, entitlement, quote unquote, entitlements are, are cut off to poor people and the very wealthy are, um, are, are protected in increasing their wealth a very cold, hard place. So the person who has been taking on this outrage is uh, the lone senator, Sheldon Whitehouse. And uh, just to quote him from your article, if you are a creepy right-wing billionaire and you know the public hates your view of the world, the only way to be king is to work your way around the democratic process, go clandestine and find a scamp like Leonard Lear who knows how to move levers secretly. So that has been how the plutocracy has captured the Supreme Court, hasn't it? I mean, they can't sell their terrible ideas to the legislative branch or the executive branch via elections. So they've captured the Supreme Court. And this is a a coup in plain sight. And this activist Supreme Court They've done their moral authoritarian bit. They'll do more, obviously, but they've gotten rid of abortion rights. And now they're moving to basically take away the federal government's ability to regulate air, water, health exactly. and safety, you name it. Exactly. And um, and that was always, you know, that was always the long game. I mean, the you, you, you identify the um, alliance with Leonard Leo, the alliance between anti-choice and the uh, no-tax corporatists, let's say. But actually, it goes back much farther than that. It goes back much, much farther than that. They brought, they they, they came together really in the um, 
in the 80s um, with the creation of the moral majority. And I think that was during right after Carter, maybe, um, where they decided, oh, God, we're going to lose the South here um, and and we can't. So they had this, you know, Richard Vigory went down there and met with Jerry Falwell Sr., I believe, and they created the moral majority. And that, you know, was brilliant because it makes what I was talking to somebody about this the other day, like if the churches are are a, are an organizing um they have an organizing function and, and, and our side doesn't really have that. Right. I mean, there, we're not church going. So what on the left, like, what is the, or where, where do you get people to go? Okay. Everybody go out and, you know, and vote on, you know, a certain day. And you, you say it, you, you know, you check in on each other and, you know, it's brilliant. Um, so, but they had to pay back, uh, the money, the money class. And, and that, in the end, is what it's about. So just in closing, then, what can the average American uh, who's not a billionaire do about this capture of the Supreme Court and this capture of our politics with this massive uh, dark money fund that Leonard Leo has at his disposal? I guess well, there's some sort of a little bit of revenge, if that's the right word, in terms of, just to quote Senator Whitehouse, Leonard Leo's new lavish lifestyle appears to be his reward for helping anonymous right-wing billionaires capture our Supreme Court. Well, apparently the the locals in Maine, where he has his new mansion, uh, have been picketing him, and that apparently gets under his skin. But there has to be something beyond that, surely, to redress this imbalance. Yeah, making their lives miserable and, you know, people pick at the Supreme Court justices, too. And, of course, that just gives fodder to the, oh, no, you know, you're right. Look at the Antifa. They're going to kill a justice. Um, now, uh, that's not going to work. The, the you know, people have actually emailed and DM'd me since I wrote this thing. Isn't it, we're in despair. Is there anything, you know, what's going to happen? It's over. It looks like it's over. This is the game up. And, you know, no, you have to have to have faith first of all i feel like leonard leo is is getting so he's been so corrupted by the money that eventually it's going to collapse like nra or something um i have faith that that might happen because it's human nature and he's got so much cash um and the other thing that you have to remember is that you know you got to support sheldon whitehouse and you got to go out and vote and you got to pay attention to it and you got to make sure your fellow citizens are aware that this is going on um is democracy dead? Is it over? I don't know. You know, I mean, I think, look, Marjorie Taylor Greene represents an actual constituency. I mean, there are people like that in America who are fine. They believe in QAnon and they believe in all this crazy stuff. And, and you know, so they're they're organized. But there are a lot of people in the United States who aren't. Most of us are not like that, and most people, I think, are are um, upset by it. So, so you know, you have to have um, faith that you know people will get involved. You know, half the country doesn't vote, and and so I think that's the answer. Um, I wish that the Democrats were more, had more spine, and had walked in there when they had the House and the Senate. And, you know, expanded the court, expanded the number of states and really done what um, the right would have done with that amount of power. Um, And that's, you know, they they have to buck up. And I don't know. I don't know when or how that happens. We have to get on our side. Got to get people who are ready to fight. 
Well, Nina Burley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Nina Burley, who's a journalist, best-selling author, documentary producer, and publisher of the Substack American Freak Show, a professor at New York University's Arthur J. Carter Journalism Institute. Her journalism has been published widely, including in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Airmail, and New York Magazine, and she's written seven books, the latest which include The Trump Women, Part of the Deal, and Virus Vaccinations, the CDC, and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic. And she's currently working on a memoir about growing up Iraqi American and has an article at The New Republic, Who is Leonard Leo's Mysterious Dark Money King? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.